This is Swamp Side Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read Samir Amin's 1988 book, Eurocentrism, specifically part four, entitled Towards a Non-Eurocentric View of History and a Non-Eurocentric Social Theory. about eurocentrism yes today we decided to read eurocentrism by samir amin a great marxist theorist who died somewhat recently and we specifically read part four towards a non-eurocentric view of history and a non-eurocentric social theory from his book eurocentrism biographical sketch of amin he was a roadie on. for the Guess Who. Uh, he was at Woodstock. <laughs> oh, fucking come on. All right. He's he wasn't Samir American. Okay, Jacob. Oh, what? Just because he's got a foreign name, you think he's well, not American? He was fucking racist. He was born in Cairo and died in Paris. Yeah, he wasn't a fucking Yankee. Okay, he wasn't at a fucking Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think everyone who's older than you is a boomer. <laughs> I think he was like advisor for Nasir's regime. Wow, yeah, he's he's got a lot going on. So he arrived in Paris, joined the French Communist Party, then he left, joined some Marxist circles, presented his thesis, he went back to Cairo, and then from 1957 to 1960, he was a research officer for the government's Institution of Economic Management. Then he left Cairo to become an advisor to the Ministry of Planning in Bamako, Mali, from 1960 to 1963. In 1963, he was offered a fellowship to the African Institute of Development Economics and Planning, I guess. I'm just trying to read French. Um, until 1970, he worked there. And then he became the director of that African Development Institute, which he managed until 1980. 1980, he became the director of the Third World Forum. So this guy actually was a mover and shaker. You know, unlike a lot of the academic economists that we could be reading. Yeah, I mean, but honestly, what kind of score do you think you would have got on Candy Crush? You know what I'm saying? Like, some <laughs> people are getting it done. He seems aware of the limits of national developmentalism, but he is aware from it because of firsthand perspective, because mm. he has been involved in these institutions and stuff. So let's take it from there. I personally just thought this was fascinating and it confirms my own pre-existing views on some things so I, I like it for that but it also made me reconsider some ideas yeah i mean like eurocentrism is kind of like an easy mindset i think to combat or get rid of or disprove or whatever you want to say and i feel like he does way more work than is necessary but in doing so you know develops like some theoretical shit that's super useful even beyond just like combating the idea of eurocentrism you know what i'm saying the main point of the section we've read was to construct marxist theory of historical materialism on a non-eurocentric basis yeah i think that's actually and harder than it sounds basically this transition from communitarianism slash communism to slavery to feudalism to capitalism isn't universal for all societies and Marx realizes this, so he creates this idea of the Asiatic mode of production, and he kind of resorts to all these Orientalist stereotypes. And as a result, it distorts his theory of development. And Samir means making a lot of very Marxist claims in the framework of historical materialism that would challenge the idea of the Asiatic mode of production. Right. Argue for you know a non-Eurocentric conception of development that doesn't see the path of development that Europe took as an inherent natural path that all societies take. Yeah, well that's a good question too to base things around is, you know, why why did Europe develop the way that it did? You know, and so a lot of it just he basically he basically subsumes all 
like agricultural class societies under like the heading the tributary mode of production. Isn't that isn't that what he does here? Yeah, and I actually uh, have always agreed with that position. In part, there's um something called the communal mode of production, um, which I don't think is identical with foraging society. It's a sort of like settled early society that I think sort of combines ancient and Asiatic, and Asiatic is also split up. My thing of mean is getting out here is there's all kinds of transitions and forms of these different modes of production. For example, he talks about feudalism for him is a peripheral form of the tributary mode of production. It's a decadent it's actually, form. It's, yeah. it's like a weak form, actually. Yeah, he sees uh, feudalism as basically the tributary mode of production weakened by the communitarian form of production of the German barbarians, which is actually an idea that comes from Perry Anderson's classic uh, antiquity, a few passages from antiquity is feudalism. He's saying that the decentralization of European feudalism is the reason that capitalism started there, and that's the reason that it intervened in other countries' development, and that there were actually internal dynamics towards capitalism, like a, a, a self-generated capitalism in the countries that capitalism imperialized, but Europe just had it first. Ironically, because yeah. of how weak feudalism was as a system in, in yeah, ways. Basically. And, and the fact that it didn't revolve around a central state power as directly as other forms because of the lordship kind of vast. Yeah, it has this decentralized, parcelized sovereignty that allows for something akin to capitalist property relations to develop. And so he basically argues, yeah, that all of these different tributary societies developed the forces of production and had their own internal contradictions and had the capacity to form capitalism, but it was just feudalism, a peripheral mode of the tributary mode of a, a peripheral form of the tributary mode of production that yeah. basically was able to win out in the game of these emergent historical properties. I pretty much like hard disagree that it's easy to get out of the problem of Eurocentrism, especially with regards to historical materialism. And the reason I say that is because the genealogy of the theory of historical materialism is basically like an inverted form of the Hegelian and general sort of European civilizational worldview that there's something special about the West and that there is something stagnant about the Orient that needs to be kickstarted by yeah. the West. But how is that though? It's just like an outcome of like Marxism having been an outgrowth well, of. That's precisely what I'm saying is that that's fundamentally like embedded in the genealogy of the theory. And in order to develop beyond that, you do have to do as radical a revision to historical materialism as he is doing in order to not model everything on yeah, Europe. Yeah, because he's saying that this idea that the Asiatic mode of production is stagnant and has no internal contradiction that leads it to develop, it says, well, actually, no. If you look at the world, basically all societies are like that, including feudalism. It has its own... But this doesn't mean that there's no contradiction within the mode of production. For, for example, in the tributary mode of production, he says the tendency is towards the creation of use value. And so mode of production is going to be centered around basically, you know, enforcing the production of use value, whether for the, the tributary elite or the direct producers. So, I, I, I mean, I guess first, before we go on further, maybe we should just talk about what the tributary mode of production is and why it's... That, that enforcement thing is interesting because it, it it centers feudalism and other tributary societies in a kind of political and military oppression rather than this direct economic means of coercing yeah. the peasants into performing their labor. If you read, for example, Ellen Mason's Wood talks about this, Perry Anderson talks about this. In these pre-capitalist societies, you don't have the same division of politics and economics that you have in society. And it's through direct political power over the direct producers that the elites in these societies extract resources. And so the idea of the tributary mode of production is that you have peasant villages, then you have peasant households, and these produce goods. And then these goods are paid as taxes to tributary 
boards and this is used as a surplus that's used for all kinds of different unproductive consumption or it's used in some cases for expansive consumption but the need for the tributary lords to kind of maintain power puts a limit on how much this is actually invested into expansive consumption let's abstract a little bit what i want to do is read a section of 222 where he basically sums up the tributary mode of production the tributary stage is the history of all civilizations based on the following characteristics one significant development of the productive forces Two, developed unproductive activities corresponding to the size of the surplus. Three, a division into social classes based on this economic foundation. And four, a developed state that goes beyond the confines of the village existence. This stage presents the following aspects. One, it includes a great variety of forms. Two, beyond this variety has common characteristics. Because the extraction of surplus labor is controlled by the dominance of the superstructure within the context of an economy governed by use value. Three, the fundamental mode is a tributary mode. Okay, cool. Four, the feudal mode is a variant of this. Five, the so-called slavery mode appears as an exception. Six, the complexity of the stage beyond the immediate relations gives rise to market relations, and you need the concept of a social formation to explain how complex it can be. And the stage is not stagnant there's still a considerable development of the productive forces. So that's like a lot of stuff. This is a very general category, trying to subsume a lot of societies into one definition. But I think that the reason why he's trying to kind of make this common definition for all these different societies is to say that basically humans have more in common, even down to just the basic societies that we have lived in in the past in common than we realize. You see all these different commonalities. You see similarities in religions, similarities in folklore. And so really, there really is a universal human experience. And so, because there's also a section of this book, it's not the one we read, where he does kind of take on post-colonial uh, cultural theorists. And he says that, they challenge Eurocentrism with a different kind of particularism rather than creating a true universality. And really right. what he's trying to do is construct historical materialism as a truly universalist theory that looks at the world from the vantage point of Europe, but from the vantage point of the world. Because there are Marxists, you know, I'm not going to name them, but... They actually just say, oh, straight up, oh, well, Marxism is Eurocentric, and that's good because capitalism developed in Europe and Marxism is about capitalism. And if Marxism isn't Eurocentric, then it's not really Marxist or you know, whatever. I've heard people say nonsense like that. And most people yeah. deny Eurocentrism, but there is a tendency within, like, for example, Stalin's work, the way he presents the movement of the modes of production from primitive communism, slavery slash antiquity, feudalism to capitalism this is you know the basic idea that sees the ancient greeks and romans as the apogee of civilization and then feudalism is the next stage after that because it has to be a linear progression from that and then finally the next linear progression from that is capitalism and i mean is kind of offering them a non-linear historical materialism where feudalism is not a progression from this old glory of rome but basically a peripheral version of a more common international tributary mode of production. Going into this, because I had no idea what this guy had like done before, I just sort of knew him because of like delinking, you know, that concept, which is not a very well-looked-upon concept given like what happened in Cambodia when it was sort of tried, but going into it, I didn't expect for him to like lay out sort of like this universalist theory of general modes of production and I, I didn't expect it to like even have like sort of the talk about productive forces given like the title of the book like it kind of surprised me just the sort of like theoretical rigor of it too Samir Amin comes from basically a Maoist background and I first heard about this book years ago when I read Lauren Goldner's review of it, where he basically praises the book for its kind of universalistic vision, but then goes into a big rant about how Samir Amin has advocated for de-linking, and de-linking is what Pol Pot and Mao and Stalin did. 
And so therefore, a mean is basically not truly a, you know, universalist, but really just a developmentalist nationalist. And I think that this is just really unfair because even if, you know, Amin had some questionable political positions, I don't think that that needs to be the, the way we look at all of his theory, you know. Marxists in this period who are dealing with really real questions of anti-colonialism and racism might have had sympathies to movements that don't really look so pretty in the 21st century. It doesn't surprise me, though, that he's a Maoist given especially some of the stuff that he gets into later in section six. Well, he uh, does talk about a transfer of value from the periphery to the core. And he says that this can basically be found through the imbalances in the market. He puts like a specific number on how much value is transferred to in like 1980. Right. Yeah. Which is where I am kind of questioning. Him. But at the same time, it's undeniable that there's unequal development. Right. So it, this would just be a matter of like empirical, like, you know, does his theory hold up, which, you know, I, I don't have the background really to know. But what I would say is that a lot of this would have to do with capital intensity, where, you know, value is coming from. Well, he's arguing against national methodology, basically focusing on the economy as a national unit. And he says that when we look at value, we have to look at world value which means that we have to look at really the entire world division of labor and start from there and determine what the average value of labor power is. And so I think from there, you could make an argument that there is imbalances throughout the world division of labor and how much workers are paid above their value or below their value. And so you can say that basically, you know, this whole imperialist network of rents basically it makes sense to a certain degree. Obviously, when I mean, you get in the moralistic stuff about it, how workers in the first world are, are exploited, but are actually exploiting others, and the main contradiction is poor nation and rich nation. It gets completely bogus, but there is some truth to this stuff, that there is a massive amount yeah. of underdevelopment massive, that accompanies yeah. development. And the idea that the third world is going to basically be able to use capitalist development to solve all its problems has proven to be extremely delusional. Except where there's a state-led development, like... But even then, like even then, it's still like, like a, a crypto-fascist corporatist state like South Korea. Yeah, you know, like... And there's still massive there in income inequality. Like, yep. Even if you do get this ideal developed like state, it's still based off massive income inequality and chaos and... Yeah, there's no question about that. Just to double back on, again, what makes this all so difficult is he does something which I think more Marxists need to do is that when criticizing Stalin, look back to Lenin, look back to Engels, look back to Marx and see if this could plausibly be their theoretical heritage. And unfortunately, if you try to do the thing that a lot of good Marxists or good readers of Marx do, where you try to connect his earlier thoughts to his later thoughts, you could permit the interpretation of believing that this European sequence is more or less fundamental to all societies. Like, you could read it differently. I think there's stuff, especially towards the end of Marx's life, where he's, you know, really contemplating what would it mean for a world system yeah. to enable a section of the world to, quote, skip a step yeah, he, he sort of talks about it when, like, receiving criticism from, like, Russian populace. The Narodniks. Yeah, the Narodniks about capital basically argues that there's a possibility that, like, Russia and, like, other nations could have sort of, like, distinct, like, progressions into capitalism, essentially. And, like, a Russian peasant revolution could possibly spark, like, revolutions across Europe. He was basically admitting, yeah, capital kind of focuses on Europe in particular. Which is understandable, like in Marx's case, because, you know, he was basically working with materials he found at the library. And so it's like, you know, yeah, his theory of, you know, the Orient or whatever is underdeveloped. But the materials he was working with, with which he could have studied, it was underdeveloped. Yeah, definitely. And you see Marx as he, he learns more about non-European societies and pre capitalist societies that he starts becoming more anti-imperialist and less mm -hmm. Eurocentric. He starts accepting the idea that, you know, this pathway is not the universal pathway of history and that it's even possible 
in context of a world proletarian movement to skip capitalism. And I think that that's pretty much true. And something that's interesting in here is kind of his idea that capitalism comes from the periphery, which is really similar to kind of Trotsky's idea that world right. revolution is triggered in the periphery. And that it's often in the periphery where you have kind of combined uneven development, but the contradictions of the world system are at their most sharply expressed. That was an interesting idea. Yeah, and this is where I have a lot of sympathy for him, but with the fall of the Soviet bloc, that thesis seems really difficult to maintain. It's not as if any of the theses are easy to maintain for how transition will work. Is it all that plausible that it will originate in the United States? It's you know? not. It's, I think it's more plausible that it originates in the periphery because if you have a true world revolution, obviously eventually the more advanced capitalist countries will be part of it in the periphery where the world contradictions of imperialism are going to be at their most intensely experienced. Right, right, right. And, but that doesn't necessarily translate to revolutionary action. I mean, historically speaking, what normally did was the expectation of an expanded future and being shorted. So it's... And the, but the other point is, is that, you know, in 1917, most of the world was still peasant and hadn't been industrialized. Whereas today, it almost doesn't make sense to even talk about core or periphery because you have manufacturing zones all around the world. So what is considered the periphery still has an industrial proletariat that is overall more numerous than the peasantry. Really? That's kind of decenter Europe in a radical way. It would take a certain degree of collapsing taking place within the imperialist core for something to be set off by a crisis in the periphery countries. You know what I'm saying? Like, the biggest nightmare would be that somehow, like, the United States is able to maintain, like, its middle class, like, in labor aristocracy mm -hmm. and use that to stoke, like, a kind of. Um, mm -hmm. to, like protectionist nationalism that like basically is perfectly content to mow down whatever like hordes are coming here to like escape like the ecological apocalypse you know but you know there is a little bit of hope for that i mean look at like the arab spring for instance right like that was the thing that like inspired people here because of the contradictions that exist within our own society oh yeah it's you know just what I mean? the increased globalization of society makes the whole vision of world revolution more Feasible. And also the fact that what is once the periphery or and still is essentially the periphery is actually more of an industrial manufacturing proletarian zone. Obviously, the United States is still the leader in manufacturing, but there's just a huge swath of petty bourgeois who are living off fictitious capital. This population is largely existent because of imperialism. So you can see how in revolutionary periods, like, for example, the wave of you know 1917 to whenever... Like, that was caused by a crisis of British imperialism. So you could say that it could be the crisis of U.S. imperialism that triggers a revolution in the periphery that could therefore trigger a greater crisis of the entire world system. The interesting thing, though, is in comparing the way he characterizes, like, the petty bourgeois, you know, in the transition out of feudalism to, like, the petty bourgeois we have now... Like the petty bourgeois we have now are like this weird negative dialectic, like compilation of like the lumpen proletariat and like the petty bourgeoisie, where it's like the worst like rentier aspects of you know parasite and society aspects of the lumpens, but given like the distinction of like the petty bourgeois, you know, because at least like the petty bourgeois coming out of European feudalism were making some shit, you know what I mean. I don't know, like petty bourgeois were often looked at as parasitic, even without any, you know, lumpen stink on them, you know what I mean? I mean, in the classic transition to capitalism, petty bourgeois were often semi-proletarianized or just capitalist. Like, it was basically, at first, you know, you have a tributary mode of production where everyone, you know, works their own land and pays taxes to the ruling elite. But then as this situation breaks down, you have a division of the peasant masses into in this process of the peasant masses being proletarianized and divided between capitalists and proletarians does create a radicalized peasantry that is in a way the subject of the classic bourgeois revolution and now you know the small proprietor is essentially a reactionary piece of shit <laughs> this is mostly about the tributary mode of production of course but as a theorist of pre-capitalist modes of production, as he calls it, he also has this concept of the communal mode of production, 
for the community stage, the long transition from primitive communism. Without too sharp a distinction, what do we think he is summing up in this? So the tributary mode of production, right? And I'm not super familiar with like the tributary mode of production as a theory. I mean, I've heard it a lot, but I've never really like gone even into something this deep about it, right? What he's basically saying is that all advanced agricultural modes of production were basically governed by protection rackets, where you have like this warrior class and their job is to make sure that people don't come around and steal your grain, but they'll take a portion of your grain for that protection. I guess it would just have to begin at any point that people were settled enough that it was easy for like roaming bandits to come around and steal their grain and they couldn't defend themselves. I don't know. And is that just like a long stoned out rant or does that make no. any goddamn sense? No, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. I think Weber, like Max Weber, the German sociologist, has a modernization theory that more or less looks at pre-modern societies as based on patronage, not plugged into these universal institutions that they're supposed to be governed by, you know, abstract principles or whatever. I do think that broadly captures something, and I appreciate the attempt to work that insight into the Marxist framework. You have to kind of like stabilize society because, you know, like, again, you could pay tribute to the bandits who roam through and just give them some money not to steal all your stuff. Or you could get this local guy here. He'll do it for you for cheaper. You know, so I'm interested in his teleology. But to zoom out a little bit, he says this. There are only three consecutive stages of a universal nature, the community stage, the tributary stage and capitalism. He describes the community stage as a long transition from primitive communism. He doesn't really list primitive communism as being like a universal feature, but it's sort of implied. Hmm. He has a theory of transitional forms, which we should get to, but he seems to treat the community stage or the communal stage as a mode of production. Yeah, what you're asking is how would it be different from the tributary mode? We're going to presume here that the communal stage has like some form of fairly settled agriculture. It says that the settlement of agriculture and, sed and the creation of sedentary society is, is basically part of what creates, it's what leads from the transition, yeah. well, basically. It's, 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 a, it's okay. a long process of thousands of years through which basically what we would call primitive communism or basically classless clans essentially develop into tributary societies that have established state structures and class structures. Yeah, it would seem to cover like everything from like early horticulture where you just sort of like plant shit uh, in addition to roaming, you know, all the way through some of the early forms of sedentary agriculture that don't actually give you a reliable surplus. The first criterion here for a tributary on 222 is that this sedentary agriculture can ensure more than survival. Okay. So I think that's maybe the hard line there. That's maybe like the fine break when, when we're really generating a surplus in sedentary agriculture, being able to produce a surplus. That's one of the fundamental criterion of the tributary mode of production it's possible for those societies to generate small surpluses above their bare subsistence needs. I'm sure it happens all the time. Where does the quantity translate into quality? How many pounds of grain? That's what I'm asking. Until you get roving bandits. Yeah. <laughs> he makes reference to relations of exploitation within the communal mode of production and division of surplus. So it's obviously possible to create surplus you know, without having surplus generating agriculture. Kind of what's missing here is an explanation of what I call the patriarchal mode of production, which is basically the development of household production that's controlled by a patriarch who basically owns his wife as property and his children are as property, and he establishes a surplus by exploiting their unpaid labor. Is that a universal stage? That's what's complicated. Is this kind of the, one of the intermediary stages between primitive communism and tributary motor production like one of the processes that kind of develops right, right, right in this transition to class society is the establishment of a formalized patriarchal property structure yeah i guess that's just an ambiguity because he does talk about transitions as being like a lot more historically specific than his overall typology but by calling yeah. the community stage a sort of long transition uh sort of I don't know, 
<laughs> trying to figure out like the general dynamics of the communal stage, which he only goes into a little bit because I feel like that would help me understand the tributary mode because I actually like where he's going with this. This is exactly what I want from a theorist is to do universalism based on the real empirical record. The tributary mode, the tribute is being paid towards more broader forms that are like mediating society. Whereas like the communal mode, any surpluses or tributes would be given towards like other members within the kinship networks or community. You know, you know the whole idea of the gift economy kind of like there is this sort of micro economy of a surplus, but it's kind of distributed throughout the community using these different norms and whatnot, which is often very much religious in nature. And I think it's helpful too in this piece just generally he still recognizes obviously the distinctions between different modes of production, but it is helpful to think of kind of that entire, you know, pre-capitalist history of agricultural societies as kind of being like fairly similar because they were, they were all granted in like the same kind of relationship, more or less of the populations, the land, right? Most people were peasants. Well, yeah, we know what I mean. Like once people settle down, right. That kind of relationship to nature and amongst people is going to structure the relations of production and within the societies uh, to a certain extent and where the similarities will probably be greater than the differences but it is still possible within this to examine the sort of different historical progressions of it historically maybe because of the hegelian aspect and marx were kind of mystified as like this you know <laughs> phenomenological development of like human consciousness yeah did anyone else get a sense from the alienation section that he kind of views people within the communal and tributary modes as more or less being natural humanity and like anthropological alienation and that it's not quite social yet. Yeah, I think that there still is an existence of social alienation just in how people that's what I think. their experience of nature. Yeah. Even then, there's a level of social alienation, but I think you really... You don't see it at the same level as you do on capitalism, where you have this extreme atomization and fetishization of value. Instead, fetishizations take a kind of religious form that are used to basically implant the power of a very much entrenched elite. I mean, it all goes back to taboo in a lot of senses, right? You can't have a society with like taboos and holy things and stuff without social alienation. Yeah, let me find his specific comments on it. It's on 228, where he's comparing the mechanistic sort of historical materialism to the dialectical, mutually interactive historical materialism. Yeah, and I, and I like that. You know, I thought yeah, he was yeah. overall correct in all that stuff. That's his idea that social laws and natural laws are two different things. Natural laws are, you know, seen as inherent natural feedback loop that just continues in its right. own logic. Whereas... In social laws, you have both the object and subject, and they interact in different ways, and there's human agency that can determine how these social laws are expressed. So more so than laws that are tendencies, and are tendencies that are a product of humans acting in collective ways to create aggregate effects. Well, I agreed with it overall. I specifically didn't like the fact that he sort of separates it as this is the enlightenment mode of thinking in terms of like Whiggish understanding of like how history develops and it's technologically driven whereas this is the real dialectic understanding of history that understands subjectivity in history if i were writing it i would say that these are both enlightenment conceptions different conceptions still both coming from the same broader enlightenment tradition i guess well he says but, it's the radical bourgeois interpretation of marxism and i think he might be talking about stalinism you might be talking about Marxism as used by a kind of national developmentalist elite. It's this hyper-mechanical, even Eurocentric form of Marxism that has the most appeal to the Stalinist developmentalists. Because they have to compete with capitalism in the third world, and so they read Marxism as basically a book on how to develop capitalism. Right. Yeah, I guess it would be out of character for him to think of Marxism as necessarily beyond the Enlightenment. So I think your criticism holds, Rosa. So I just wanted to read the part that made me think that thing about nature and capitalism. Amin distinguishes between alienation, between 
humanity and nature, which transcends the social modes and its permanent anthropological dimension, then says this. That second, you know, cool interactionist dialectical theory, in attempting to specify the successive contents of the social alienation, the conclusion is reached that all pre-capitalist class-based social systems are characterized by the same social alienation, which could be called alienation in nature. The characteristics of the latter result on the one hand from the transparency of the economic relations of exploitation, and on the other hand, from the limited degree of control over nature corresponding to the level of development of the productive forces. Social alienation must necessarily take on an absolute religious character, the condition for the dominant place that ideology occupies in social reproduction. In contrast, the social alienation of capitalism is based both on the opaqueness of market relations and a qualitatively more advanced degree of control over nature. Market alienation thus substitutes the economy for nature as the external force determining social evolution. The struggle to abolish exploitation in classes implies liberation from economic determinism. So anyway, factor of alienation ends up being replaced and because of control over nature, we fundamentally overcome a natural condition, not in ancient or feudal times or even in Asiatic, which was thought of as beyond a primitive communism. But yeah, but in capitalism. Um, I agree with that overall, like what he says there. Is, it, is that a tortured interpretation? Am I, am I being like unfair? Or, or I mean, I think that it is true that fetishism gets replaced under capitalism by market fetishism. And <laughs> these economic laws that are outside of our own control become more and more of a factor that underdevelops our capacities for freedom rather than our own lack of ability to master nature. Yeah, but like, I don't know, like Vedic India and, you know, the Roman Republic and all these ancient civilizations are all just natural. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Okay, so the layers of mediation society increase as society becomes more complex and as you have like, you know, market relations and capitalism and so forth, right? And so to like to, to a certain extent we do come to dominate nature more. That is to say we can alter nature in order to suit our needs to a greater extent than say when most people were you know living on their own plots of land, growing their own food, right? Subject to the elements. Nature still is kind of this external force, but because most people are not dependent upon like nature directly and work with through the market, like the market then acts as that unfathomable force that like structures their fortunes in life and shit. Mm. But there was always there to an extent before because people still understood themselves as existing in society, and there were some people who weren't growing food that weren't them. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think it's like as a quantitative to the qualitative thing. It's right. That's, that, yeah, that's my point. It's, it's it's not that people in pre-capitalist times lived in this era free of mediation, completely in tune with nature, and with no like alienation and mediation that wasn't natural. But rather, under capitalism, which is just that we have this completely new level of commodity fetishism that interpenetrates our consciousness, and then we become subject to these economic laws that are completely outside of our control to a greater extent as a species. So this is really about social alienation and natural alienation more so than it is about being in nature or not. Because the more we talk about it, you know... It's not today. Yeah, his theory of the tributary mode of production is that the ideology is dominant and it is expressed by great metaphysical systems it's not unmediated in the tributary mode of production you have basically a elite class that expropriates the direct producers by violent force and uses and creates a metaphysical system that allows this whole arrangement to somehow be reproduced socially where people somehow consent to it and so therefore this whole metaphysical system that has to somehow create a natural hierarchy within the system. It actually reminds me of Evola in that way, because he talks about how under capitalism, we move away from this natural hierarchy as based on a metaphysical system and mm. how this is us becoming alienated from our true natural being because we yeah. all just become an undifferentiated mass instead of a, a caste system with, clearly delineated roles and understanding where we belong. Yeah, so saying that it's natural kind of buys into the ideology because, look, there's all these different ways of being, quote, natural. 
right in the same paragraph in 229 about the metaphysical systems, he makes some comparisons between the tributary and communitarian modes of production that I think is kind of helpful. Metaphysical systems function here in aid of the extraction of the surplus, whereas in the communitarian mode, it is the dominant ideology of kinship that functions in aid of the reproduction of relations of cooperation and domination, but not exploitation. Moreover, provincial or local religions are characteristic of the communitarian modes and the dominance of kinship systems, in contrast to the state religions characteristic of the tributary mode. This gives us an idea here that those metaphysical systems, those broader elaborated religions, not like the folk traditions, that's one of the big differences is the form ideology takes. Yeah, he says that when you have the communitarian mode, that religion takes a more spontaneous aspect almost. That it's kind of a product of humanity's lack of understanding nature. So we create this kind of spontaneous pantheistic ideology. Whereas when the development of tributary elites and how they consolidate their power, it's more important to create this kind of completely systematic metaphysical mm. worldview that can be used to directly dominate a group of people. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that he notes that the dominant ideology of kinship does not function in the aid for reproductions of relations of exploitation. More interesting is that he makes a differentiation between exploitation and domination. He says that you yeah. still have relations of domination in this communal or community form, but it doesn't take the form of a structured class exploitation. And I think you could even say that the lack of Marxism to really understand that split between domination and exploitation is kind of why anarchism can become yes. so popular because oh. often marxists will just act like everything in society can be reduced to class exploitation and all forms of domination and violence that people experience as oppressive is just like part of the greater class system expressing itself the world is just more complex than that you know there are but, forms of domination that are super relevant to exploitation. But yeah, yeah, and the way and life is not obviously simple. it's not that these things are completely separate. Obviously, domination serves to reproduce exploitation in different ways, but they often have a, a level of independence from each other at times as well. Not all yeah. forms of domination and abuse and violence directly exist functionally right. to reproduce the capitalist system. Right. Right. Marxism centers class because it's the backbone of reproducing society or what have you, not because it's the center of all suffering in the world, for sure. I feel like this is a good time to bring up slaves. He has some interesting thoughts about slaves. He basically argues it's kind of a strange like state of exception that occurs around certain conditions. And that's why it sort of pops up at weird times in history, right? One point that he makes is that to have slavery, you have to have war. And so it's always a form of the tributary motor production that is at war and capturing people and enslaving them. And then he also makes a point that the existence of market relations makes it so that slavery can be more incorporated into a society because it plugs you in to these societies that are, you know, slave producing states basically well yeah he starts off pointing out like how feudalism doesn't result from slavery it followed like sequentially but there's not like a passage of one from the other and he cites japanese feudalism as like an example of going from communitarian to uh, tributary without passing through slavery that's like the stalin interpretation when you read dialectical and historical materialism is that it's classical marxism have, yeah classical marxism basically and the german ideology you know and even though that wasn't meant to be published or not, or whatever. Marx his... thinks that way at that moment in time. This is a guy that, during that time that he was alive, he, he had thought that capitalism had worn itself out, which means it expanded like around Europe and Asia and a part of Africa and, and America, but like mostly was really only got a serious foothold in the territories in which he was in. In Europe. And so th this guy thought that the whole world's been capitalist now. I mean, it's basically all capitalist now. It's time for revolution. Like the whole world's capitalist now. If you look at the grand history of capitalism, it's kind of a quaint idea. Yeah, exactly. Like when you look at, for example, we brought this up last episode, but the persistence of the old regime, how much artifacts of these pre-capitalist patronage relations exist into capitalism 
Oh, yeah, but I was making the inverse point that capitalism had so much farther to go developing as a world system as sort of evidence for yeah, much yeah. being Still, Eurocentric, obviously. Yeah, he was Eurocentric, but this isn't, you know, really even his fault. It's kind of pointless to complain about it his, as like a fault. Well, rather the point than is just, to correct it. The point yeah, is to exactly. correct it's, it. It's, it's something that's systematically built into it because of the material conditions that produced it. So therefore, we have to take this into account when reproducing Marxism in modern conditions with more historical knowledge at our disposal. I mean, Marx was well, a I probably believed here. that Europe would have a big revolution and then you could have humane development. Well, yeah, that's like the argument that I've heard left communists make, that nationalism variation wasn't necessary because basically you would have had a European revolution and Europe would have been able to humanely integrate all of its colonies into the World Socialist Republic. That and is that's just laughable. Yeah, I mean, it's a completely laughable idea, but people still use that argument to say that revolution has to start in Europe and the United States right now. They'd fucking join the White Army. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense, yeah. If you actually look at it in the real yeah. trajectory of class struggles... Practically, it would just be like socialist imperialism, essentially, or colonialism. It's cool. Right? They'll welcome that us. Was liberators. Well, that, that was Bernstein's view, was that colonialism was actually good because it spread capitalism throughout the world and therefore advanced the preparation for socialism. And so, you know, you have the Marx who actually does say that colonialism is yeah. progressive. But then you also have the Marx who praises the Indian rebellions against colonialism and calls for their victory and says that even their worst savagery against the English is justifiable because there's such thing in history as revenge or something like that. There's two sides of Marx on this question, really. He matures is what happens, is that he but does a lot of journalism for, was it the New York Times on Indian... New York on, uh, Tribune. Excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> lying New York Times, read the New York Tribune. It's got Karl Marx in it. It's great. Um, <laughs> well, the point being that when he was reporting on British colonialism in India, he had a change of heart. You know, as anthropology developed as a field, he was able to critically excavate it for his own purposes to develop a more open-ended historical materialism, which he never really systematized, except in vague passages of the Grundrisse, is also where you can get a lot of chunks of that stuff yeah it's mostly angles it's good stuff though yeah i guess we got spun off on that because we were talking about slavery i found the paragraph in question okay here's where he basically lays it out all observers of true slave societies ones that exploit the productive labor of slaves have remarked on the exceptional character of this mode of predatory exploitation thus slavery presupposes the society that lives by it carries out raids outside its own territory it dies out when the possibility of such raids ceases in other words, slavery cannot be understood by means of an analysis focused exclusively on what occurs inside the society in question. It goes on. The concept of a system of formations must be introduced into the analysis, some being the societies of the slaveholders and others the societies where the hunt occurs. This is why slavery appears most often with extensive external market relations that permit the purchase of slaves. The odd bands that engage in the hunt for human beings and the unstable type of society that they set up would hardly exist without a market outlet for their product. This type of society does not form a necessary stage in itself. It is an appendage of a dynamic that largely escapes it. Observe the curious coexistence between slavery and extensive market relations in classical antiquity, lower Iraq, and America. The existence of market production is uncommon in the pre-capitalist world. The areas where slavery dominated then cannot be understood by themselves. They are only parts of much larger wholes. Yeah, this is in line with uh, kind of modern historiographical debates on slavery, which is yeah. that when we often study slavery, we focus on American slavery in the South. But that really can't be understood without looking at the entire Atlantic slave trade, which means looking at Caribbean, looking at Africa, looking at Britain, other European nations, looking at all their financial institutions. And this ties into his kind of ultimate point, which is that we have to look at capitalism as a world system, where there's basically a world market that imposes a law of value. And then in different national units, this system works out in different ways. But overall, they're all part of a whole system. And capitalism as a whole operates through this kind of totalizing, globalizing logic. 
And honestly, that's kind of just how you have to look at history in general. The, you know, the deconstructional idea of the West, like there wasn't like a clear demarcation between these societies. They all had some degree of contact with each other throughout history to a certain extent. And what happened one place would affect things elsewhere. So, you know, there was yeah. like an interaction of these societies that it wasn't a world system necessarily, but there was definitely a larger like, degree of interconnection that is often portrayed or presupposed. Well, take, for example, pre-Columbian Americas. You know, you still had empires like the Incas and the Aztecs that build up these advanced class societies with these advanced tributary networks and power structures, and they would invade other societies that had different traditions and customs and integrate them into the empire. And so you had all of these different indigenous tribes that were being integrated into these greater tributary empires like the Incas and Aztecs. So you see this kind of phenomena all throughout the world and that's kind of his point is you know in the end like humans are basically the same everywhere it just kind of looks different <laughs> yeah we're all the same on the inside man he's trying to make a call for a truly universalistic <clears throat> politics to bring it back to slavery it's uh, a real credit to his theory that he tries to restore a universal story of how the productive forces create different societies and his coup de gras for slavery as a distinct stage of society is that slavery is associated with the most varied levels of development of the productive forces as he goes on from greco-roman antiquity to 19th century capitalism in the united states and brazil how could a necessary stage be found in combination with such different levels of development of the productive forces so he's still using the level of productive forces as a determinant. So he's like, well, look, this doesn't line up at all. This is some kind of aberration. This is something that pops up with, you know, market exchange and, you know, certain kinds of intercourse between societies. It doesn't happen within a society. It's between societies. And That's how slavery develops. The point is that just slavery can't be a mode of production because it's not associated with any particular relations and forces of production as you said it occurs in all different relations and forces well, it is the relation right well like, it's a relation of production but it occurs if in the arrangements within other relations of production yeah. it has to be situated in a larger social body for it to even yeah. make sense and i mean and you could even say that a mode of production has to be situated in a larger social body that makes sense Whenever we're looking at a particular society, it's always abstracted somewhat from the complete mode of production because there's also aspects of other modes of production. It's just that there's a dominant mode of production that basically controls the main logic of reproduction. Because you can say that there's still remnants of the tributary mode of production, even within American capitalism. Like, look at the role that organized crime plays in American capitalism. Is that not a system of patronages, you know, enforced through direct violence that allows characters to collect tributes from each other. Yeah, but capitalism has that dynamic too, just by itself. Like, it has black yeah. markets. It has, like, you know, intimidation. Those things don't always disappear. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that they don't disappear. That yeah. these, these direct forms of predatory exploitation still have a use in capitalism. And that's why, for example, in India, capitalism hasn't made the caste system go away naturally. Instead, these forms of exploitation that were more direct and personalized were utilized by the accumulation regime of capitalism. We didn't really talk about uh, mercantilism, how that plays into European particularity. I think we could talk about how this kind of fits in with the Brenner debate. Because Brenner basically argues that really the world system doesn't matter in the end because England was the first country to develop capitalism. And so people accuse Brenner of basically having this nationalist methodology that Amin is criticizing because well, he just focuses on capitalism as something that develops within a single nation state. It's not even so much that capitalism develops. It's that a political entity develops capitalism. Well, in the Brenner thesis, at least as Artigo of Mankin's Woods, in England is the only place where capitalism kind of develops according to the own logic of reproduction and the class struggle. And then after that, governments force capitalism onto tributary societies in order to compete with England, basically. 
All right, this is interesting, but let's situate this in a broader perspective. Whenever I was reading Brenner, I always had in the back of my mind, like, it's not like this is logically inconsistent with historical materialism in the orthodox fashion. Like, all of these really in-depth empirical accounts don't seem necessarily opposed, but I didn't have too much else to go on. Yeah, it's just that capitalism doesn't develop in one country. Even if the breakthrough in class relations happens in England, it still has to become something that dominates the world. It's a world market, ultimately. The world market precedes capitalism, actually. And you could say that capitalism is basically a certain logic that takes over a pre-existing world market while also advancing the world market, perhaps. Yeah, maybe he's not responding to Brenner. Maybe he's just resp- He's probably just responding to the general, like... Well, Brenner's whole school was basically a response to the world systems analysis school. And Amin is very much kind of coming from the world systems analysis school. Yeah. McNair, for example, he seems to think that there's a lot to take seriously from the world systems analysis school. There's also issues with Brennerism. So, you know, I've been more and more willing. So I used to be a hardcore follower of the Brenner thesis, but the more I read of the other historians, the more I realize they're kind of unfairly portrayed by some of the, you know, more Brennerite historians, I guess. They're way more nuanced than their critics suggest. That's what I'd say. Yeah, I mean, G.A. Cohen is as misrepresented as Kautsky on this score. There's a really good point that he makes at the beginning of Section 6. That's kind of obvious, but I love the way he puts it. The idea of speaking of actually existing capitalism never arises. Capitalism, in popular opinion, we will see the same thing in scholarly analysis, is the North America and Western Europe of the television serial Dallas, the welfare state and democracy. The millions of abandoned children in Brazil, famine in the Sahel, the bloody dictatorships of Africa, slavery in the mines of South Africa, and the exhaustion of young girls on the assembly lines at the factories in Korea and elsewhere, all of that is not truly capitalism, but only the vestiges of the previous society. That's really the hypocrisy of uh, the right, <laughs> you know. Because actually he talks about the term actually existing socialism, coined by Rudolf Barrow, who was, you know, a fascinating theorist, and he's describing East Germany. And his intention was to just look at the socialist, quote-unquote, system that actually existed in the Eastern Bloc and just analyze its economic material logics and kind of just do this you know, Marxist-style analysis of the actually existing concrete thing. And I think that's what I mean This really trying to do is not trying to find the very abstract in the capital itself, but look at the actual world capitalist system as it exists in the real world in interaction with other systems while becoming the dominant one. And in a sense, though, I mean, it's not wrong that those things are vestiges of the previous society, but at the same time, you know, like these countries are held to like these standards as if like they are already like developed capitalist societies. It's really bizarre. And even if these things are vestiges of a previous society, capitalism is still able to basically instrumentalize them for the purposes. Yeah. They're arranged on a new basis. Just like the caste system in India, as I was saying earlier, capitalism didn't make it go away into this undifferentiated homogenous proletarianized mass. But instead, these relations of division and inequality and domination become utilized for the purpose of reproducing the overall capitalist relation on a world scale, where you have a world labor market proletarians who are forced to sell their labor power to survive. Right. It's something that's specific to like colonialism as like a sort of stage of capitalism playing into the ethnic and sort of like tensions that are already existing within these nations like for example like the tensions between like black christian south sunnis people and like northern muslim sunnis people were heavily played into by the british rulers when they were in power well it also reminds me too of how he's talking about the ways that capitalism was developing in tributary societies outside of europe that Europe intervened in that development, but that perhaps in ways capitalism met those societies 
internally developed capitalist tendencies in the middle in a certain sense. And so capitalism is, is to blame on both ends of that relation in a way. Like emerging capitalism meeting with developed capitalism. This opens up a lot of new alleys for historical materialism by especially this concept of world value. Because that's my problem with capital is, and I know that Marx did want to write a volume about the world market. He traces out the very much the abstract logic of capitalism, but he doesn't look at the actual world market and its functioning. He doesn't go to that level of the concrete, as well as the state. And I know that in future volumes of capital, he did plan to write about the state and the world market and the financial system. But I think basically continuing historical materialism is basically continuing that whole project of going from the abstract and to the concrete to understand the basic tendencies that control society and development. Something I found on the internet in a book called Studies on Pre-Capitalist Modes of Production. I was just looking into this because Jarius Banaji also uses tributary mode of production. And I was trying to find, you know, what's the origin of this? And Amin himself remarks that the term was probably used by Jiro Hoyakawa, a Japanese Marxist in 1934. That'd be interesting to dig up some of his work. Yeah, he talks a lot about Marxists who haven't even been really translated. Yeah, he talks about how a lot of third world Marxists debate these questions, but no one hears about them. Come on, what kind, what kind of international fucking bunch of nerds do we have that well, aren't translating this shit? Is, I mean... Uh, there's Egyptian, a lot of right? shit that's untranslated. That's actually a big problem. Samir Amin is Egyptian, right? Yes. A lot of people try to use his work to like justify supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, but he ends up saying like, "No, you're being stupid and misinterpreting my work." Yeah, he has like some pretty strong opinions on like political Islam being reactionary from the stuff that I looked up about him. A lot of people try to shoehorn him in with third worldism, but I think that's unfair if you actually read his work. They do the same thing with Fanon, and Fanon is explicitly like yeah. a humanist that wants universalism. And now Samir Amin is dead, so he can't argue against the idiots who misappropriate his work. Yeah. Aww. But uh, yeah, this was a really good introduction to his work, and I plan on reading more of it. Yeah, I think we were all pretty impressed with this, right? This is a fundamental correction to historical materialism that needs to be yeah. like, if not adopted whole hog, just like all these insights need to be developed to their logical endpoint because we need a new way of being able to generalize about these things that isn't going to just pave over the differences in human history. But also doesn't, you know, sort of self-consciously throw out the idea of modes of production for being teleological or something. And I think yeah. that's yeah. that's the knee-jerk response is, you know, oh, Marxism is teleological, but humans organize themselves into modes of production. That's really happened. Yeah, and it doesn't embrace parochial nationalism as opposed to Eurocentrism. Instead, it embraces universalism. Because there's a whole chapter in here kind of critiquing the parochial cultural nationalism that's often invoked as a response to Eurocentrism. And I thought that was important. I wanted to ask one question, maybe to end things off. Is Leninism a form of the tributary mode of production? I wouldn't say Leninism. Yeah, Leninism is an ideology that... Whatever you want to call... Let's just call it actually existing socialism. I was actually thinking about it while I was reading it because... like, there's similarities for sure. uh, I remember and like Stalin sort of makes the argument that, oh yeah, the Soviet Union's socialist because we're producing based on use rather than like the commodity systems. Yeah, exactly. And you still have a layered political class system of expropriation but relies on state power and so i think you could say that classical actually existing socialism has forms of the tributary mode of production built into it and this is why i want to read rudolph barrow really bad because he goes into this actually and talks about how this was one of the big problems of the soviet union was that it wasn't able to kind of overcome these deeper aspects of class society and if you think that you know tributary mode of production is basically a thing before capitalism, then it can make sense that some of the things that the Soviet Union didn't overcome were kind of rooted in the tributary mode of production. Well, you can also see it in like the ideological superstructure. Christianity is replaced by you know basically Stalinism, and you know 
like Marx is the father, Lenin's the son, and then Stalin is like the pope or whatever. He's like the representative of all right. Like, and dialectical materialism on Earth. Then there's Leninism as the metaphysical system. There's definitely some parallels. Marxism, Leninism, not Bolshevik Leninism. Whatever you want to call it, that's fine. There, there's cool forms of Christianity and Islam too. Like yeah, exactly. There's cool forms of Leninism. You know, I would say but, we have to go beyond Leninism, but it doesn't mean we should dismiss all Leninism. Look, I'm just saying from an analytical standpoint, that's the metaphysical system that forms the ideology of the tributary mode of production in that historical instance. I don't know if I would call it a tributary mode of production because I don't even know if I'd call it a coherent mode of production. There's a connection there. I'll say that. If you want to read the thesis surface, you've got to read John Eric Moreau's book because he basically presents Russia as an invariant tributary mode. Interesting. Up well, until the restoration of capitalism in 91 or so. Well, it's, even then, still very much held back by its tributary aspects. It's clearly a transitional mode of production. Like, in yeah. the same way that he says that transitions are historically unique and are characterized more by change than they are by any individual, any individual, like, essential law. The Soviet Union had as many economies as it did leaders, so <laughs> it makes me I mean, feel had just way. economies within factories and economies within villages and economies within bureaucratic fiefdoms. There's all kinds of same economic anthropology you could do on the Soviet Union. Okay, so I, I actually want to end this on this. Like, what if like slavery was the only mode of production? And what if instead of like being like forced to work the fields, you kept what you worked, but then you had to pay it to the government. <laughs> was, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh yeah. That sounds like, like something that Ian Cap would say, that like all modes of production are slavery except for capitalism. Google, <laughs> Google, Google human farming. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that does actually illustrate the absurdity of slavery as a mode of production. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, you would have to like use more labor managing the slaves than you would have slave labor. Like, it just Honestly, doesn't work as a logic of reproduction. If we're going to watch a shitty video after this, especially after this conversation, we have to yeah. watch human farming. <laughs> Jake, I pulled, we, I pulled up the video for human farming. The first comment, top comment. <laughs> This sounds like our world system. <laughs> Woke. And that's it for this week. This was one of the most instructive readings we've ever done on this show. Thanks to C. Derek Varn for recommending it to us last show. Check us out on everything, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Patreon, for the love of God. Until next time, comrades, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.